Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Commercial with a state podcast. And welcome back to the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wright. And I'm your sometimes host, Adam Scalina. Uh, good to see you, Corey. You're back in the saddle, which I'm is back. nice. I'm back. But just just for the record, yeah. I was working in Kelowna. I wasn't up there <laughs> sitting on the beach or any of that. And I, I do have to say, I listened to the episode. I was actually up there with Jeff Brown. That's what yeah. happened. Here's what happened. I heard Downtown we were, Jeff Brown. Downtown Jeff Brown. We recorded the episode the week earlier. Yeah. I was so hyped on Kelowna. Right. I was so worried when the episode would come out, everyone's going to run to Kelowna. I had to beat everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so I went up and I, I went up early. Insider trading is what it was. Insider trading. Well, um, it's funny because Matt and I were thinking, there's no way Corey's going to listen to this. So we just oh, spent yeah. the first like three minutes just chirping you. Yeah. No, I heard, well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. You guys sounded so good. I was really, I didn't know if my key was going to work for the front door today. <laughs> I was really worried about that. <laughs> We we had to buzz you in, but uh, yeah. but I think I think to be fair, you know, you guys taught me a lesson. Let let's be honest yeah. here. You know, people can't see what happens behind the scenes. I walk in today. Yeah, you guys had to unfortunately fill in to me, for me last second, which I I'm glad. I thank you guys for doing so. I walked in today, waved hi to you guys at your desks. It's like when you go to the mall. And you see the girlfriend from grade eight, yeah. and you walk by her, and you want to have a conversation. Yeah. She walks by; she doesn't know you. <laughs> you guys don't even even acknowledge me as if I'm almost a stranger, and yeah. then you make me do the podcast all, all by, by myself. Yourself. Yeah, no, I know. Lessons it's, learned. We, we had, lessons it's learned. Like, it's like when you put the dog's nose in it just yeah. to, to teach exactly, it a lesson, exactly, right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> we've got a uh, speaking of of exciting and uh, and and speaking of Kelowna, really, because yeah. when I I think of Kelowna as one of the biggest growth industries in Kelowna. I think of cannabis. Well, it's funny. There was a report that came out, I think a year or two years ago, and I can't remember who it was by, but they actually said based on the climate of Kelowna, it right. could be the cannabis production capital of Canada. Wow. For growing it for uh, growing it for the retail sector. So it's, you know, Kelowna's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I was up there. Kelowna was normal. Like it was just hustling and bustling. Not and a lot all. of smoke, right? No, not what, no, no, it was, it was, it literally, it was exactly what you'd expect when you go up there. Unfortunately, every time I go up there, I bring in the clouds and rain. They, the office tells me every time. <laughs> right. Right. So I think, I think what I do is when I, when I tell them, Hey, I'm coming up this weekend. I think they sort of like, they, they pack it in yeah. because I'm, I'm bringing the rain. They just, that's to be expected up there, but it, it's hustling, it's bustling, it's exciting. You mean you mean I don't think any of the 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 summertime deterrents have affected that you know the mindset of that market. Developers are buying, right. homeowners are buying. Like it's a it's well, phenomenal. We were just talking there. about this before we turned on the mics, but yeah. even amidst the uh, the the wildfires, yeah. two project launches sold out in like you know less than seventy two hours. Right? Record. I heard one didn't even really even make it to the public. No. No, yeah, and that's and that's the thing. So it's just it is crazy out there. I know I follow um I think it's BNA Brewing on yeah, their yeah. their Instagram. 
man, their Instagram makes you want to stop whatever you're doing and go get a pint of beer. Well, Kelowna, that, that's just Kelowna, period. It, it feels like it's, it's, it feels like it's a <laughs> yeah. young town. It feels pretty vibrant there. That's, uh, that's awesome. So today, actually, we are talking about cannabis. Yes. And uh, you did the interview alone, but yeah. catch me up to speed. So on this week's episode, we had Jeff Preet, who is the president of Jima Cannabis, a cannabis retailer that they have stores and operations in both BC and Ontario. And we really wanted to unpack the industry because I think there's there's stigma that surrounds it. And we talk about that on the episode. We also talk about like comparing it to like the liquor store business. If you go back 10, 15 years ago, no landlord wanted a private liquor store because like, you know, you're going to have homeless people and drunks everywhere. And right. every landlord now would die to have a liquor store as an anchor because the stigma has gone and that model's sort of proven itself. Yeah. And we talk about how, you know, cannabis is still dealing with that. And 10 years down the road, that could be the private liquor store that every retail landlord wants to get. We also talk about the challenges the industry has, how long it takes to license the stuff. And then also, you know, surprisingly, you know, a lot of people think these guys are just packing dump trucks full of money. Yeah. And he kind of breaks down a little bit how that's just not really the case. And saturation could be a problem in the industry moving forward. So it kind of really unpacks all the myths behind the, the pot industry. So this is actually like behind the curtain stuff. And, and you actually see how the business actually breaks down. Yeah, we go through all the challenges. And there's a lot of challenges, the timelines. And, right. and kind of like the sacrifices financially they have to invest even just to get spaces. Right. You know, it really kind of opens your eyes up to the industry. A lot of stuff people don't understand when they see you know, the pot shop open their doors they think, oh, these guys probably have a dump truck out back. But it's, yeah. just, it's just not the case. Very expensive business to get in, very risky business to get in. Well, I remember when I first got into real estate, like, you know, what, 11, 12 years ago, talking to people that were so concerned yeah. that a pot shop would enter, enter like into the commercial space yeah. and the mixed use buildings, right? Yeah. And even up to about, you know, I, I still think today, right? Today, that's still a big, today. that's a big concern. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, we'll save it. I'm sure you guys cover this, but yeah. if, if these guys pay a premium and if, how hard it is actually to find a location yeah. that will actually support cannabis. So I'm excited to listen to that. But, uh, before we get to that, who are we sponsored by today? We're always sponsored by our friends over at Impact Commercial. For all your commercial lending needs, reach out to them at impactcommercial.ca. Alan, he's the man. Oh, Saves my life. <laughs> Guy saves my life. <laughs> I, owe, uh, I owe so much money to so many people. But you don't Land, know. Let me, let, me, let me back that up. This is on the drug show, right? We're talking yeah, about the yeah, cannabis? Yeah, no, yeah, not yeah, that way. Not that yeah, way. Exactly. I owe so much money to so many developers. If Al wasn't there to bail me out every time I show up with a contract, right. uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. I would be six feet underground somewhere. <laughs> I'd probably be under a building that I owe money on is probably what would happen. <laughs> And I'm excited to hear uh, Jeff's uh, music choice. Uh, uh, don't don't well, don't give it away. But my guess, yes, my guess is uh, just given the 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 topic of the show, um, we're going to be looking at some Snoop Dogg. Surprise! Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll uh, tell you this. Yeah, it's not what you think. It's and not I'll, what you think. But okay. I will. I'll give you the hint. Me and Jeff, we could become friends after this episode. Ah, uh, well, let's leave it there. Without further ado, our conversation with Jeff Preet. Enjoy, guys. And we're here today with Jeff Preet, president and GM of Jima Cannabis. Jeff, how are you doing today? I am doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. Thanks so much for joining us. One thing I think that a lot of people, you know, have a have a I, mean, I won't say a myth behind or are really interested to find out is the retail cannabis business. And we're so fortunate to have you on. But before we get into that, can you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yep, for sure. So 
at my soul, at my core, I, I like to find solutions throughout my career. It's been off the foundation of technology. So computer engineering diploma from SAIT. I worked for telcos, oil and gas. I worked for Metalab in Victoria, you know, one of the most Canada's reputable design and development firms. But I've always been chasing uh, solutions, not tech for the sake of tech, but solutions. Now, in the cannabis space, lots of solutions need to be found because there's lots of regulation and lots yeah. of stigma and lots of uh, different challenges. So at the end of the day, I've used the foundation of tech to focus on solutions to translate that into uh, multiple segments in different areas of business, most often focused around strategy and, and, and tactics and game plan. Wow. So that type of background gets you as the head of an emerging cannabis company. <laughs> it's about it's about who you know is investing in something. So, but I think the it's the creativity of finding solutions yeah. that gets you to the head of any type of uh, of job is your ability to see opportunity in challenge and your ability to find your way through around you know different what some people might call limitations or opportunities yeah. or frameworks. That's, that's it's the creativity and then the desire just roll up the sleeve, figure it out, get it done. Well, I think, you know, you're, you're a great example. And I think the you know, cannabis industry from the retail sector, I think still lags a lot with the stigma surrounding. And I think if we go back, you know, 10, maybe 12 years. And we remember when, when liquor stores were first introduced, landlords wanted nothing to do with them. There was a stigma yeah. around liquor stores and the guests, the people who would be at the liquor stores and who'd be hanging outside the liquor stores. Fast forward 10 years. Every landlord would die to have a liquor store as an anchor in their center because they're nothing to what everyone thought. And I think the cannabis industry, I think, probably still suffers from that a little bit. And there's a lot of really, really good stores. What have you guys found? What challenges have you guys gone through? I mean, how many stores do you currently have in operation? How many stores are in the pipeline? Maybe, maybe unpack that a little bit for us and maybe, so we kind of get a better idea of kind of where you started, where you're at, and you know, the challenges you guys have had along the way. Yeah, so I actually think on, on your question, there's a there's like four or five different answers within that one. So I think one thing on the stigma of, you know, 10, 12 years ago, no one wanted a liquor store. Well, a lot of that comes down to the extreme behaviors that come from liquor, whether yeah. it be alcoholism or noise or disturbance or whatever. So those are the extreme behaviors, yeah. uh, those that are not responsible, which is it's a fringe case that gets a lot of media. Now the same type of thing within, but 95% of all Canadians consume alcohol as per stats. Canada, I think is the last number that's out there. Now when you come into cannabis again, it comes down to, Oh, they're just a bunch of, you know, it, it's vagrancy and potheads and laggards and all those types of things. That's the stigma. Yeah. That stigma sticks to the business as well as the product, as well as the people that are involved in it. And then there's just fear, uncertainty, and doubt around, hey, is this a legit thing? So liquor has, you know, these businesses are selling for five to seven times profitability, meaning, yeah, okay, this is a good business and we want you as a tenant. Yep. Cannabis is doing, uh, so we're not raking in like, you know, we're on a Colombian cartel burying <laughs> money in the sand here and forgetting yeah. about it. That's definitely not what's yeah. happening now because we're highly regulated. We have a lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we can explain those later on. Yep. 
but it's hard to get into licensed cannabis and you have to meet a high standard is federally legalized, but that doesn't mean the hearts and minds of those who are influential in and around landlords, municipalities are totally on board yet. So you really have to go above and beyond to break down those stigmas and barriers. So but what we've proved like liquor is we are both recession proof and pandemic proof. Uh, this industry is predominantly grown through COVID. Look at Ontario and Alberta kind of grew before uh, COVID, but in large, they hit their current mass numbers through COVID. BC is main expansion is through COVID. So as a landlord, why would you not want a company that is both recession proof and pandemic proof and was actually listed as an essential service as a tenant? Yeah. We've done some stores and I'll be honest with you, when when the licensing process first kind of came out, there was a lot of landlords that were really hesitant and pushed back a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of landlords are a lot more open to the idea now because I think a lot of these cannabis stores, they're, they're not what was probably first expected. You mean, I think, I think some landlords thought it's going to be like a hemp hippie store selling bongs and you walk into these places and they're, they're beautiful. Like they're, they look like Apple stores, some of them. And, and I think the clientele is not what a lot of people probably anticipated it would be who not knowing the industry. And we've seen a lot more landlords now that are open to these ideas and are open to that type of tenant than maybe, you know, six months or a year ago, that was a, that was a no go for a lot of them. Yeah. I don't know. You make a good point. Now there's, again, it's more complicated than that because the early, no matter what word you lose, use the unlicensed, the illicit, market, the you know black market, not a lot of, I, whatever term you want to use for the sake of this one, let's use illicit or unlicensed market. Okay. How those stores ran, there was high end and then there was super low end and they weren't licensed. They weren't legal and they created some, but they were paying their rent. They're good people. Like those that were in the illicit market before, some of them are very shrewd operators, smart had good business models and and ran very well, but enough landlords and and local communities got burned because there wasn't a lot of connection between community landlord and policy. They could just do whatever they want. They could get shut down by a CSU or the police and they could pop back up. It seemed like they were untouchable. Now though, with a licensed, I have so many layers of people and you want to do this anyways. And I'm not saying this is, you know, woe is me, but there is between the landlord the municipality, the businesses around you, the people who live around you, your provincial territory and your federal, these are all key players and stakeholders that I got to keep happy to make sure I can keep operating a store. So it's very difficult and you got to change the hearts and minds of all those layers in order to have a successful store. Let's unpack that. You want to open a store. I mean, you guys have, have several in operations already and we'll talk about that in a second. What is the process you guys go through, both from a municipal level and maybe a federal level, that you have to go through to get a store license? And what type of timeline is that from the time you sign your lease, cross your fingers, to maybe you get that store open? Uh, that's a great question. And it changes by province. So let's focus on two markets, uh, one being BC. So within the province of BC, in order to get licensed, I have to find a location and that location has to be free and clear of setbacks. And those setbacks are somewhat de- uh, developed by the province as well as the local municipality. Sometimes they're really clear 
And other times they're a little vague. Vague is a benefit and a curse at times. So let's, and in Victoria, there was some pre-legalization zoning for cannabis. So let's just talk in general. You have to secure a lease. Okay. So I got to talk to the landlord. I got to find a location that's free and clear of setbacks. I got to secure that lease, good, agreeable terms. But I also have to understand that I may not get it. So I need an out. I need a break clause in there. So now I've got a lease. With that lease, I can submit my application to the province. The province uh, has a full package. It's like who your partners are, where does the money come from, what does your background look like, what did you do for the previous 15 years, who are your friends, who has potential financial influence, criminal background checks. You go through that process, and then while that process is going on, you hit kind of a, I think they call it their financial integrity point and you get what's called an approval in principle. You have that approval in principle, the province communicates with the local municipality. Municipality accepts the, or let me rephrase that, they acknowledge the receipt of that from province for fit and proper. The province then continues on for security check. They start looking at the facility to see if it has, if it's a suitability and they go through their process to say, okay, yeah, as a province governing body, we are willing to work with you. That can take, there's cases, there's no binary one or zero. I've heard of some going through the process as quick as three months. I've heard others that have been been years into it. Wow. Us, we were close to nine months to go through it. Now, the complexity of your ownership lengthens things. Like if you have multiple partners or if you have a corporation that owns it instead of an individual, that challenges things. So I'm between, let's call it between six to nine months, maybe a year, depending on complexity, just to get through the province. Wow. When that letter goes to the province, the municipality is like, okay, now we go through public hearing notices and is this proper zoning? We have any concerns? You go through public hearing windows and there's one, two, three, maybe as many as four gates that you have to get through, or they could say yes or no. So you don't actually know that you are going to be able to turn up a store until the province approves you for approval in principle. The municipality says, yes, you can get it. And then you do all your construction. You get an inspection. Then you can get your business license. And then you have to pay a cannabis premium on your business license. Vancouver, it used to be $30,000 a year. They've dropped that down now. And in Victoria, I think it's 5,000 bucks a year for your business license. Wow. So there is a cannabis premium at every point along this way due to fear, uncertainty, and doubt and regulation. Now, I'm not going to complain about the process. It is what it is. I like it to be different. Yes, but to your back end half of that question, what does it cost? It's going to cost you somewhere between 400000 both in time, money, like real dollars and yeah. or time. You have to, when you submit, you have to do a site plan, security plan. You're holding a lease, which means you have insurance, which means you have to have deposits. You're carrying rent. You're carrying payroll before you can open your store. Wow. So that's why stores not opened that are municipally approved are 
selling for anywhere from 250000 to a million dollars. Just because you now have the opportunity to operate a store Correct. in the future. Yeah. And that's BC. And yeah. that's, so you still have to fixture your store like you had alluded to. Some of these yeah. are Apple-like. Uh, we put in several hundred thousand dollars into our store in Abbotsford to have a brand, a feel, and an experience yeah. for our customers. It's big. It's, you know, honestly, it's too big. There's an optimum size based on experience and cash flow. But we wanted to create an experience, and you have to invest into that with flooring, lighting, fixturing, technology, look and feel. You had mentioned there that that these are never guaranteed stores. Oh. What type of percentage rate do you enter into that actually convert into a store at a later date? And maybe of that, you mean how many don't? Um, I don't know the number, so I can't say a percentage, but I ran, our model was one in three. For every three locations that I submitted for, yeah. I would get one. Now, we're a little higher than that. Yeah. And the reason we're a little higher than that is because I put the time and effort into understanding the setbacks and talking with stratas and business associations and municipalities before I submit. Cause once you submit, you're not really allowed to talk to someone who can approve or reject it because you're in an official cycle. Gotcha. So gotcha. we increase our success rate by doing a bunch of, uh, research before securing the lease. So knowing the setbacks, knowing your, what the opinion is of those both businesses and residents around you, business associations, where are you going to get support and where are you going to yeah. get resistance? And you have a game plan. So I lost Sydney already. Okay. Uh, so I've, I failed actually twice. That's not actually true. I failed twice. I lost in Comox because there was other competition that moved through the funnel faster than me. Yeah. Um, Comox was fantastic. Like, Hey, we just approved our last one. So I didn't have to carry on for months and months more to find that out. Yeah. In Sydney, you know, we went through the process and, and we didn't event end up going through, but that's kind of the, the risk is, you know, even these are guidelines, not yeah. rules. Yeah. Uh, and guidelines means subject to interpretation and or adaptation. So that leads me to my next question. Is there some, cities and municipalities that are easier to work with and is there some more challenging and again we don't want to we're not here to, to put any municipalities down but i've heard like new westminster for example i heard that they're limited to five stores and i think it was like a pilot program that they were trying to run and that may get increased at a later date it could already be increased for for all i know at this point but they had like a pilot program is there municipalities that are, are more friendly to this type of business than others yeah, so there are municipalities that are more friendly to cannabis, but there's just simply municipalities that are more efficient, whether you're cannabis or not, because their process is a little different. And ultimately, local governments are representing their constituents. Yeah. So there's different fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and demographics that come into play. And you see that through their policies. Specifically, you're going to have pro-business versus pro-residential and pro-density versus low-density. So each area does present its own problems to solve and opportunities to achieve. Now, you talked about, was it New West? Yeah. Um, that West. only put in five. As a retailer, I love the fact that they put yeah. limits in. 
So my interpretation of the federal and provincial store counts is they're making safe and accessible cannabis for anyone in any region. That's kind of like the blanket statement. Okay. But as a retailer, liquor gets a one kilometer setback. Okay. Cannabis is not operating in that same fashion. You know, different municipalities. I look at Ontario. Well, let's actually move to Ontario and another one. I look at BC and the setbacks within like Vancouver. Yeah. They're three, 400 meters, but there are variances. There are some that are a little closer, but in large, they're kind of following that. Yeah. But that's a really high density. What I look for as a business operator is one store for every 10,000 people. If it's below that, I question whether I should go in there, not because I'm not confident in my business model, but because of saturation. You can have too many stores. Now, I believe this is a belief. So you can cut this if you want or whatever, (laughs) but it might be controversial. My belief is that the number of stores that are being done in Canada is about eliminating the illicit market rather than creating value for retailers. I think that is a distinct risk for cannabis reputation going forward is you allowed too many and then you have to cut back or they naturally cut back. And that's going to create a problem for those who have signed leases and made long-term commitments and spent money because you went too far too fast for the wrong, for a different reason, not a wrong reason, for a different reason. If the sole purpose is store count to quell the, illicit markets uh, strength. I think we need different tactics than that because it's oversaturated. I was just in Kelowna this past week and up at our office there. And there is a very similar situation like that going around there right now with some retailers where there's a couple of retailers, I think that are, are kind of have their hands in the air because they feel that there's being too many of these stores approved in too small of a dense area. That's going to make it very challenging for a lot of these retailers to survive. And they're questioning the, uh, I guess, the council's approach to it, where some of them feel that they're kind of going against what the original guidelines were. And I guess the the rumor is, and this isn't, I mean, this isn't from anyone direct, is that they're looking at that from a taxation standpoint and not looking at the ability for these retailers to survive and almost taking, you know, looking at filling the city coffers first before looking at the survival of some of these retailers in this particular in the downtown core there. Is that, is that something that's sort of, you know, you see in multiple municipalities, this is the first I've heard of this. Again, I'm not on the forefront of the industry like you are, but this is something that that's definitely made its way to the forefront in Kelowna that we hear about quite often now. Yeah. So Kelowna, the, the interior in general, Kelowna, Penticton, Asoyuz, Vernon have a, a high degree of store density per uh, capita. Kamloops is well up there. Nanaimo is well well up there. So there are markets within BC that independent retailers and BC cannabis itself have gone into to create a saturated environment. Now, you mentioned like this is, you know, the local municipality. Is it the local municipality's job to say, yes, you can or can't go in? I don't know. Is it the province's? I don't know. Is it the retailer? I don't know. I have an opinion. So if it's the municipalities, please publish a number so that when you hit that, we stop applying. 
if it's the province, please publish that number so that we as independent retailers can do so. If it's left to the free market, please speed the process up so I can get in quickly, learn fast, adapt, and not have such a high barrier to entry. Like every time I fail, I'm a couple hundred grand in and I have to repay that somewhere. So if you want the market to figure out how many stores can do it, please adjust setbacks. Please adjust the timeline to do things. But if you want the municipalities or province to have clarity, please publish those numbers and what your goals are so that we don't get oversaturation and close stores. You know, I don't want stores closing because that means a business owner lost money. It means another business owner in a real estate management company, a landlord, now has a vacancy. There are impacts to oversaturation. There are also impacts to slow rollouts of things as well. So what's the secret answer? I have an opinion of how I would make things changes, but you know, I'm one person at maybe someone else shares my same kind of sentiment, but there needs to be reform of the process to align with purpose because the processes that are in place are not about retaining value in the retailers. Well, I, I think your point there is, is well taken because I think it's an industry, obviously it's kind of I don't, I don't want to say we're going through prohibition, but obviously there's a major transition and it's happened over the past couple of years. And I think there's a lot of people that are looking to get into this business or who are already in this business that there needs to be some level of, of guidelines. I can tell you from like a landlord position is I would be hesitant to put that business in not knowing enough about how many of these stores can come available versus a liquor store. I would gladly put into one of our properties just because it seems like, I mean, there's a lot of governance from the local municipality that they're not going to oversaturate that industry versus this one. So I hear, I hear mixed stories from, from city to city on what's happening, what's not happening and who's allowed and who's not allowed. I think from a retailer standpoint, what you're asking or what you think should be put forward, I think would only be fair from an industry that, that these people from the tenancy side are taking on enormous risk hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars in risk in multiple stores that they may, they, these, some of the stuff may not ever come to fruition, or you might find out someone just down the street operates the same business as you, and then you don't survive. And there's a huge chain reaction that you alluded to that takes place after that. So I think what you're asking is nothing unrealistic when there's this much money, time and effort going in to sort of roll out a whole new industry, not just here in BC, but also you know nationwide, that there should be some sort of governance or leadership maybe brought forward to sort of help portray how that thing kind of plays itself out? Yeah, I think, uh, so building owners are very influential and powerful in BC in this process. It's probably worth noting talking about Ontario here in a second, but in BC, the license is attached to the property ID. So I can't move my business without severe intervention from province, municipality, and landlords. So let's say I set up a store And then for whatever reason, I fail. Now you've got, as a landlord, you've got value because you are zoned for cannabis. It's not attached to me, the applicant. It's attached to to the property ID, the zoning. And you now hold a setback. One of my fears is landlords start to think that we're so profitable that they're like, I'm going to start charging a ton. Now they already, there's already a cannabis premium. Yeah. And it hits you on both. It hits you with the deposit that you're putting down. 
it hits you with your per square foot rate. Now, there's already a cannabis premium, but I've seen places where not only do I have a big deposit and I've got a big differentiate per square foot lease rate, but now they want a percentage of my top line as a management fee. So I only have two eyes to get gouged and you keep sticking more <laughs> thumbs in there. Eventually it's going to hurt. Yeah, uh, definitely. We're not so profitable. Like a well-run cannabis business is at 20% EBITDA. I was just going to ask you that, how these businesses make money. You know, an exceptional one might be 30 in licensed, unregulated, illicit, very different economics. But I'm a good one. We budget at 20% EBITDA. Okay. And why that? Because, well, I have the governing body tells me what I can buy it at, what I can buy, and what I can sell it at. Like my floor. Yep. You can charge as much as you want, but you know, consumers are smart. They're yep. fantastic at weeding out <laughs> inefficiencies. Yeah. And they're like, you know, you're way too expensive. But because there's lots of choice between the illicit market and the BC government and us as retailers, customers are really savvy. They do their research. So there's this downward pressure on price, which is not good again for retailers. And it's not actually good for the consumer either because the deepest pockets will win, but those are not always the pockets that are going to serve you best in the way that you want to consume and learn about cannabis products and CBD products. So there's 20%. So if you have limited buys, you got my rent, you got my payroll, customer experience, somewhere close between $1,500 and $2,000 a month in software fees in order to do this and security, it adds up well run, maybe as high as 26, 27, maybe 30 on the exception. If you got really cheap rent in a location that just pops, but averaged out 20. How much impact do the government stores have on the privatized stores? And the reason why I asked that, because <laughs> the liquor store business, when the private liquor store business started to take off, that was one challenge that those retailers all felt because the government liquor stores were selling stuff at a much cheaper price than what the private liquor stores would do. And then you saw in some markets like Maple Ridge, for example, where pretty much I think all, you know, close to all, if not all, of the private liquor stores now have cut their margins to match the government store prices because that might be more yeah. of a value-driven market than, say, West Van, that the margins have shrunk dramatically in that industry in certain markets or pockets of certain markets. How much impact do the BC government cannabis stores have on the private sector? And do they sell it for cheaper than if I were to walk into one of your stores? Uh, okay. So I'm going to get a little ranty here because, you know, way to push a button. We've me. got lots of time. We've got um, lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to be a concise, you know, like those, what is it? Those old Muppet grouchy characters that are sitting, this is kind of going to be me right now, the old senior Muppets. I'm going to, I'm going to complain a little bit, but within a complaint, there's opportunity. So first and foremost, well done, Canada, well done, all provinces at federally legalizing cannabis and cannabis-related products. So that's a massive win. So let's, it's like complaining about airline traffic. You're traveling through the air at 400 kilometers an hour. You should be ecstatic every time. But the experience is so bad that you hate it. Yeah. So here's where the rant comes in. BC Cannabis, LDB, so the government controls what suppliers I can buy from. Now, yep. they're doing that to maintain quality. Excellent. They want to make sure that the product that's hitting the market meets a certain standard. But they're controlling the menu. 
all the ingredients you can buy from these ones and these they have their own product people saying yes these are the things that you're going to buy so one they control what we buy and then they set the prices so based on what they bought at i can't sell below what i buy it for now, you don't necessarily want to yeah but i don't i can't sell it below what i bought it for okay and then i have to bring that into the store and it's kind of like an open market i can't there's no predictability in the supply chain right now. And this isn't necessarily a BC cannabis problem. It's a supply chain problem. So there's some unpredictability in the supply chain and consistency, as well as availability. Like what I want to order and what I can order do not always line up. So there's a challenge there. My next challenge is BC cannabis. Well, up until recently, BC cannabis was the only one allowed to sell online and deliver to your home. Well, that's a pretty distinct competitive advantage. <laughs> now, July 15th, I think it was, they released that. Okay. So that any other independent retailer can now do it. Like, well, that would have been nice to have from the beginning. Yeah. Because that was, a, you know, discretion and delivery and convenience. Like during COVID, it would have been fantastic to deliver to your house. But no, we're kind of coming out of the, the harshest wave of restrictions. So they come out of it and it's, yeah, you can deliver now. Well, yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. And then I can only have eight stores in BC. My maximum is eight stores. Why the hell does BC cannabis have close to 30? And they're, they're not serving these markets that retailers are not going to. They're not going to Kitimat and Hunter Mile House and all these other ones that maybe a retailer can't go to. Now they're in Victoria, Vancouver, and Nanaimo and all these locations. And, and then they're dropping prices. So they're going into prime areas and they have influence, not only because of the government, but as a landlord, would you take BC government or would you take an independent retailer? No, Who I would you take from an indemnity perspective? Totally so they have a lot of clout too. Right. So it's an unbalanced playing field. There's way too much power for the government in this. They control the supply and the demand and what we can and can't sell. They are directly competing against us both online and in store. And then they have indemnity like no one else because they're backed by the government. Because they're backed by the government, are all those stores profitable? Should some of them be closing? Yeah. I don't know. So they have a different access to cash scenario than we do as well. Now, here's the other complaint I have when you talk about that is while we're federally legalized, I can't, there's, this is all private money. There's no lending money to retailers, BMO, RBC, TD. They don't lend money to anyone in this industry because, well, until the U.S. federally legalizes, no bueno, you're not getting any institutional money to build this. So this is all independent money building Canadian cannabis retailers. Definitely seems I like can a, a step You can't back. even get a credit card. It's hard enough to get a bank account. I've heard that. Get a credit card to transact the monthly recurring fees. Now you got to do it on your own. And then you got to expense it to your company. Now when you're buying the product, because I'm guessing the government, yeah. like you said, regulates who you buy from. Is there banks that you can bank with or are you showing up, dropping off the garbage bag of cash at the guy's back door that we all think 
and then you're loading up the truck and going back. How, how do you guys? How do you guys operate? Like, how does payroll operate and that stuff? And purchases operate if the banking system isn't supporting you. First of all, if you're lining up a bag of cash, <laughs> uh, it, it, we can't put five bucks together, let alone that. So it's like maybe some loonies. So that's heavy. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> first of all, the numbers, and because the loonie is now not, it's a coin. It's heavy. So one, it creates difficulty. So Alterna is like the banks of Canadian licensed cannabis. They're still have some restrictions and limitations of getting in there, but Alterna is in there. Others had some legacy grandfather stuff, but in general, you got to go with Alterna to get your, your point of sale and your merchant accounts to drop the funds into there. Now Alterna doesn't provide credit cards. Credit cards are a form of commerce because monthly recurring fees for software is required. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then it limits your merchant accounts to use like TD, like all these other uh, clearing houses, uh, merchant accounts, they don't accept it. So the early, early adopters, they had one choice, Merco. Okay. Uh, there's since now other choices, but you know, Merco is, they've done a fantastic job of helping build the situation, but they're not, they don't always have the solution that drives the right margins for every store operator, both online and in store. Their, their fees are what they are, but you want an open competition marketplace rather yeah. than just one choice. That makes sense. So it's too limiting. And I can't even complain today because those that started three years ago had a way harder time than we're doing now. Yeah. So my timeline here is I have solutions. Earlier, they didn't have options. So they had to be way more creative to do it than what I'm having to do right now. Yeah. But still, it is overly restrictive when you compare it to even alcohol and it's federally legalized, but that doesn't mean it's internationally legalized. I think yeah. that's one of the key things that's hurting us because lots of Canadian institutions work across the border and vice versa. American institutions have Canadian assets. You mentioned earlier about Ontario versus BC and I'm guessing yeah. and we'll ask, we'll get to like how many stores you have operating shortly. And I mean, is there a dramatic difference in a province to province, how they're handled? Like is, is Ontario that much yes, easier or that much harder than BC? It's that much different. So I'm not going to use the words easier or harder. It's different. So in Ontario, they have a two-step process, the retail operator's license and the, the, you know, it's ROL and RSA. You can apply to do business as a licensed cannabis retailer without holding a lease in Ontario. So you can do all kind of like, hey, am I capable of doing business and retail licensed cannabis in Ontario? You can do that without securing a lease. So provincial timelines don't actually hurt you financially in terms of carrying rent and excessive payrolls and insurance and all those types of things. Then we get to that final stage of, you know, RSA, where you actually pick a specific location and suitability and inspections, those types of things. So Ontario also, the municipalities, they're like, are you in or are you out? Mississauga, as an example, is out. They're like, nope, sorry, we want nothing to do with this. So there are no stores in Mississauga. Brampton, yes, we're in. Okay, so now they've got a bunch of stores in Brampton. Now the municipality said yes or no. They don't get to say where. Province determines if that location is good or bad. 
which is very different than BC. It seems a lot more less risky versus signing up for a lease, posting a deposit, potentially paying rent for six, nine months, maybe years before you even know it's what's even going on. It's cheaper. So if you if you associate risk with money, yeah, it's it's less risky from a financial perspective, a hundred percent. But I also look at Ontario's model now, like there is a lot of stores very, very close to each other. Uh, and that is a problem for retailers. So yep. while BC, I never, ever thought I would say this, but the regulation that is this in BC actually does retain some value for retailers longer. Yeah. They take a long time to get to saturation. Well, it's just really slow to get to no value in retailers. But if they stop soon, there's lots of value in having a retail license location in BC. But the slower rollout and the complexity within BC has added and retained value for retailers. Ontario and Alberta, not so much. They're in a very saturated or getting to a very saturated state where what your store is worth today is more than it's going to be worth tomorrow because there's going to be one or two or three new stores that have opened up inside your direct marketing area. So in Ontario, like I understand the BC province is wanting you to secure lease so that way they know like where this store is going. In Ontario, if you don't have to secure that location, are you still having to put financials, a financial deposit down or something like that with that landlord to hold that thing maybe while you go to the province to see if that's something viable? Or are you just going there, taking a risk, and then coming back and seeing if it's available? So I think there's there's kind of a two-step. So the the Ontario one is, can I, have you done your suitability background checks and those types of things? Am I allowed to be in a regulated space? That kind of Ontario has done that. Lots of people already have a location in mind when they do it. So yes, they can be securing and uh, securing a location and paying rent, those types of things. But many wait until they get at least the ROL, uh, the retail authorization license, I think is what it is. Uh, operator's license, retail operator's license. Yep. Then they can secure a, a building and a lease. Now, what we're all doing is trying to condense from start to open. So even though it's a two-step process, you're probably already paying for a location because you're trying to secure a very good spot that is accessible and convenient, presentable, and you got to get a landlord on side to say yes first. Like one of your first challenges is landlords. Will you rent to me? Now on that, that's why I like our business model uh, and who we are. And we could probably come into that. A one or two store operator, yes, in my opinion, does create more risk for landlords than multi-store operators. Multi-store operators have different access to capital. They probably have a different business plan and they have different reasons why. Uh, we're not enthusiasts, we're not opportunists, and we're not just you know, a smaller independent. We are backed a little differently. So yeah. GEMA is backed by TCAP Private Equity, which has been in business since the you know, late 90s, early 2000s with other various businesses. So we have the financial means to build out stores, ride out the bottom of the J curve and put multiple stores together and figure out and adapt, you know, through the 
the, the changing policies and guidelines. We're also providing a franchise and affiliate model, a franchise model, which is we're helping other store operators run their business more effectively. So our background, technology, retail, rapid expansion, which you know includes franchising, and data tech, which I, I kind of mentioned at the start there, we're a really well-rounded group. And not all cannabis companies, not all other businesses either, have that capacity and capability. So I see us as less risky. I look at ourselves, you know, the NBC, the the Donley Group, and News, yep. and Burb, as some really fault tolerant businesses. Like we're a little bigger than than most, so we can we're a safer bet. Yeah. So from a landlord's perspective. Those who franchise, those who are multi-store operators, they probably have more means than the individual onesie twosies. Yeah. Now I say that not because, hey, squeeze out the onesie twosies, but if you're looking at risk and the hoops we have to jump through, we've jumped through a lot of hoops four, five, six times in BC. Whereas, you know, you can you can jump through it once and it hurts, but not necessarily gonna break you. But our model is to support those ones and twosies. So our affiliate model, I'm going in and building solutions that I have encountered, problems I've encountered in our stores. Yep. I'm building solutions around those. And I'm going to extend those to the owner operators that have single stores or two or three or whatever. So kind of that uh, home hardware model where it's yep. independently owned and operated, yep. but supported by backend infrastructure. So that's a little bit of a kind of a teaser as to what we're doing, but not specific to real estate. So attention all landlords, if that offer sheet comes in and has GEMA cannabis on it, that's the sure bet. Sign it up. That's that's the (laughs) sure bet because uh, we've put teams together to solve some of these problems and a well-run, well, high quality store, we will add value to your building. Now, this is the other thing too. This is kind of a segue, but to finish your question, yes, you see a GEMA coming, please just, yes, open your arms and sign us up. But I understand the challenge of building owners and landlords because no, none of the banks actually, they actually like, oh, you have a cannabis company and we're not refinancing your building. Yeah, we, we've so seen that, that from really landlords. That creates a problem. That's a problem for not only us as retailers, but it's a problem for building owners. Like when you can't increase your cap rate with a cannabis client, well, that's a problem. So now you have a, you've had to refinance your building in advance, or you're not have no plans of refinancing your building at all to get access to your capital and equity that's in there. If you have a cannabis company, so that's a problem that federally and in institutions and lenders, we are recession proof, pandemic proof. Why are you discounting us? Yeah, we actually. And why are you punishing? Why are you punishing building owners to that want cannabis owners? You should be embracing them rather than punishing them by saying you can't refinance your building if you have this cannabis customer in there. We actually had a situation with a landlord where they put in a a multi-unit cannabis store. We won't use their name, but this gentleman actually had to port the mortgage off of this property onto a neighboring property that he owned as well, thank goodness, port the mortgage onto that property because this lender would not allow him to have that type of tenant in the property. Although they've been a great tenant and the the stores look phenomenal and uh, he had actually moved the mortgage in order to to make the whole thing work. Oh, there's, there's probably 
thousands of stories like that. I know people who bought buildings and put a cannabis tenant in and went to refinance and they couldn't. So they had to go to alternative lenders at different rates. So that really punishes profitability. Uh, I've, I've seen uh, buildings that had to basically assume that there's a cannabis tenant coming and build out the store and they, so there's no tenant improvements. So they just build out the store so that someone can essentially just kind of put in your point of sale counter and your technology and away you go. And it's an inflated rate. You're basically like landlords and building owners having to play a very different game as well in order to allow cannabis stores. So I applaud every building owner that has a cannabis store in there because you guys and gals and corporations went through hell to get us in there as well. We have partners in this. It feels adversarial at times, yeah. but I know what they're going through because the, the rules are different when you have a cannabis company in there and it should be. We are federally legalized. Please, yeah. for someone, acknowledge that within our systems and processes from a financial point as well. So would it make sense for a landlord who's got the capital position to partner with a cannabis company and acquire buildings and or store locations that maybe they don't need the financing and then called McDonald's. Yeah, exactly. Like, like would that not make sense? It, it makes a ton of sense. So if you've got the capital to acquire the building and in BC in particular, where the cannabis zoning is attached to the property ID, there is a ton of value in there. Now, Currently, you're going to need alternative financing. So you got to be cash flush in order to do that. But if you can own the buildings, there's money to be made, not only from the the asset appreciation, but you have an ongoing and recurring tenant uh, segment of tenants industry because it's you hold the property ID, which means you hold the zoning for cannabis. So I'm probably creating a bunch of greedy building owners like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. But, uh, but nonetheless, this is very much a partnership. Every store yeah. that exists in cannabis is done in partnership with a building owner. And that's just the reality of it is like, so thank you, building owners, for doing what you're doing for us. But I hope the circumstances change such that it's not so hard for building owners or retailers to get a store stood up in a high value location. So Jeff, as a, as a final question here, I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball for a second here. Where does this industry go two years down the road, five years down the road, 10 years down the road? Is there, is there trailblazers out there that are going to sort of revolutionize this industry or is this going to be an industry where it's going to get oversaturated? A whole bunch are going to fall off and the strong survive. Um, that's, that's a great question. But So my thesis, my crystal ball is under current rules and regulation and prospectors, we in Canada are going to get to a point of oversaturation like Alberta is seeing and like Ontario is seeing. And then there's going to be a market correction. There's going to be consolidation and there's going to be constriction. Like it's just, just going to be shrinkage, the number of stores and store operators. And value in stores over the next three to five years is going down. So if you're looking to sell a store, you're not going to get what you want because it's downward pressure over the next three to five years. Long-term, 
recession proof, pandemic proof, essential service for the for mental health and well-being and access. There's long-term value. 10 years, 15 years from now, policy and regulation will shift. We'll be closer to liquor in terms of value and desire or will be very viable businesses, but there's going to be some, it's frothy right now in the uh, segment and industry. Yeah. Three to five years frothy coming out of that, you're going to have a different type of investor, a little bigger, a little deeper pockets, uh, longer term game plans, not one year game plans, but 10 and 15 year game plans. Yeah. And they're going to be 15 years from now, every landlord, every strata will want a cannabis company in there because it drives traffic. It's reputable, well-run, and it serves the community for both walk score and safety and keeping cannabis out of the hands of youth. That's something I hear all the time. Oh, cannabis store will make it accessible. It's absolutely the opposite. We are the reason why cannabis is less accessible to youth because of regulation and quality and guidelines that we play by. I have a 15 year old. I don't, I don't want easy access to my 15 year old, but when the time comes that she wants to make that choice, I want it to be a safe product that I know where the supply chain comes from. So that's what we're doing. 10, 15 years from now, we're liquor. I agree with you on that. Socially, we're socially acceptable. We are desirable as a business and tenants. We are offering, we're help building local communities for services that help make walkable communities that help with density and services and reduce, you know, having to drive between communities to get the things that you want to need. That's going to take a bit of time. Lending rules have to change. Some policy and regulation has to change, but we're, we're literally coming out of prohibition yeah. three years ago. So I can understand the complexity. I don't have to like it. I can you know, complain all I want, but the net net is my job is to understand the rules, advocate for change, adapt where I need to adapt and ride it out. Well, I would agree with that. I'd agree with your prediction there because we saw it happen in the liquor business. And I know from the, the brokerage side of the industry, dealing both with the tenants and the landlords, we, we've going down a very similar slope that we did with with the liquor business 10 years ago where you know nobody wanted them there was a stigma about them and fast forward 10 15 years everybody wants them and I think the same is going to happen with your industry so we're already seeing landlords you mean sort of change their opinion year over year so I think your prediction of it is sort of turning into the private liquor store is is bang on and that's exactly what I foresee moving forward Jeff we we got a the MLG six pack here, we ask you six lighthearted questions about yourself. So we get to know you a little bit more out of the office. I know you've spent quite a bit of time with us, but do you have just a couple more minutes for us? Absolutely. All right. Actually is, sorry, Jeff, one second here. I'm getting handed some paper here. Oh, we've, we've got some breaking news. We've got some breaking news to announce. I have a, an email here that's been sent to me by Scott McKinnis, principal of McKinnis Law Group, letting me know that due to how busy he has become now, Due to all of our podcast listeners sending their legal services into it, into him, he is now merging. He will now be a partner in Red Point Law, and they will be able to handle all of your commercial needs. So we're going to have to have a new name for our our six pack of questions next week. But it'll be brought to you by Red Point Law, and you can visit them at redpointlaw.ca. 
Well, that's great news for them. Great news for that. them. Great news for them. All right, Jeff, here we go. A book you would recommend our listeners to, to read. I don't know if I'd go with an individual book. So there's, uh, so I, my favorite book from a business point of view was er, uh, Predictably Irrational, Dan Ariely. It's about behavioral economics. It's a good read on how to understand buying patterns from people. And it's not always logical. That one I can say we haven't had, but that sounds like a very interesting book, especially from a retailer perspective. <laughs> yeah. Favorite vacation spot when you find time? Uh, favorite vacation spot when I have time is not so much a spot as it's who I'm with. So I okay. like to vacation with my family and friends yep. and I like to keep busy. So anywhere that is, uh, got a lot of activity. So my favorite place so far that I've been was, uh, Roatan, Honduras, uh, lots of activity there. And it was beautiful scenery wise. Sounds gorgeous. Favorite movie. The usual suspects. Good answer. I love Kaiser. Answer. A quote or inspirational words that you live by. <laughs> so I'll put the safe podcast. Sure. Sure. In. Yeah. It's, PG. The, it's the, it's the six P's proper preparation prior prevents poor performance. That's good. Dude, I'll be honest with you. I haven't heard that, but that is, that is really, really good. After the podcast stops recording, I'll give you my other one, the, <laughs> the Jeff Creek personal one. <laughs> that sounds That sounds good. <laughs> but this, this, is, this is the loaded question here that just peels back the layers of who you really are. Favorite band or singer? Favorite band or singer? Uh, Metallica. Oh, that's a good one. I'm a, I'm a product. I'm born in this. Late seventies. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a product of that era, and they they don't all sound the same, but it's still Metallica. Yeah, no, I I, I kind of like the rock music. I tell you who I like, but then you'd probably hang up. So I'll just keep that to myself for right now. <laughs> if I told you I was a Nickelback fan, you might be hanging up right about now. Whatever. So Nickelback gets a raw ride. <laughs> everyone hate them and they could be like the number one selling artist for a period of time. There's a bunch of liars out there. Yeah, sure. yeah. No, I'm I'm gonna go with you on that one and. uh Nickelback's in my playlist. There so we go. Okay. People may undiscredit me, but they're in my playlist. Are they my favorite band? No, but a couple of good songs turned up loud. It's yeah. You've, you've won some brownies on my side here. Not too many people tell me that. Most people just kind of like, you know, pretend like they don't know who Nickelback is. So I, uh, I appreciate uh, the support. I'm authentic. <laughs> if anything else, I'm authentic. I am who I am. That's good. Uh, lastly, a piece of advice you might give our listeners. Let's say if we'll tailor it to your industry. Somebody looking to maybe get into the retail cannabis business as challenging as it is. What's maybe one piece of advice you could throw out there to help that person? Uh, the one piece of advice is learn fast, make friends in the industry. Good advice. Good advice. On that note, Jeff, how can our listeners find out more about you and what, uh, what Gina Cannabis is doing? So there's obviously our website, ginacannabis.ca. There's also more about me. I find me on LinkedIn. And then getting more and more involved, there's also TCAT private equity. So those are kind of like the three strongest ways for the public to find out more about GEMA, TCAP, and myself as an individual. Sounds great, Jeff. Once again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you taking it. We know you're super busy and sort of unpacking a little bit about the cannabis industry and the retail sector and sort of how you guys have affected it. So we really appreciate that. I appreciate it. And I'm honored that you guys you know, came across my name and then uh, you're like, oh, this seems okay. We'll talk to this guy. Uh, so I appreciate the vote of confidence on your part as well. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. Have a good Bye -bye. day.
There you have it, folks. Our interview with Jeff Preet, President Gima Cannabis. You know, I not a chance would I have expected uh, Jeff Preet to be riding the lightning. When you said Snoop Dogg in the intro, yeah. I was fully anticipating we were going to have Snoop Dogg or Dr. Dre or some good California love from Tupac or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Some West Coast. Some uh, West Coast stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. right? Metallica. Bizarre. You know what's so funny? I was on the seawall the other day and there was, uh, there was, I was walking with my wife and my daughter and we walked by a guy who looked exactly like James, Het- is it Hetfield? The lead singer, the yeah. Lead singer. The lead singer. Of, yeah, yeah. Metallica. Looked exactly like him. Like, yeah. to the point that, like, I'm not a huge Metallica fan, but, like, I looked at my wife and I kind of I kind of elbowed her and was like, check this out, check this out. And she didn't know what she was looking at. Yeah. And the worst part, though, he, he's wearing a Metallica shirt as well. Oh, that's just And ego. so I said, so I, so I said, to, I said this. That's Maria. Gene Simmons level. I know. So I said to her afterwards, I said, God, I think that was that was the lead singer of Metallica. And she goes, do you think the lead singer of Metallica would be wearing a Metallica shirt? And I'm like, actually, that makes sense. Like, well, there's no way. Well, but the guy must have been such a fan that he yeah. he, he looks like him. Well, I, I wore a Vancouver Commercial Real Estate podcast shirt to dinner the other night. Did you? Well, what does that say about me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not sure James Hetfield has your ego, though, to be fair. <laughs> So Corey, we we also before we cut for today, yeah. I, I understand that the sponsorship has actually changed on this show. Well, we we had breaking news mid show. Did you breaking news? So mid-show. what are we are we doing the six pack still? Well, we got, we got to figure out a new one because what? well this, this this is a good problem bad problem. <laughs> Scott is so inundated, and Scott McKinnis, Principal McKinnis Law Group, right? So inundated with listeners calling in or not calling in, but sending work, he can't keep up. Okay. Can't keep up. That's a good problem to have. Had to increase his staff. Still can't keep up. So now he's partnered with another couple lawyers and they're they're rebranding and opening a new law firm, Red Point Law, which is going to handle all your commercial needs, including all the developer work wow. that Scott you know, previously couldn't do. Yeah. He's now got, got he's now got partners that can handle this. So, so we're they're talking growing. Th- growing. Commercial leases, commercial financing. Commercial acquisitions, commercial sales, developer work now. Yeah. You know, all those big all those big uh, disclosure statements that they give you the novel, the 300 right. pages. Right. They can do that. So let me just understand that here quickly because I was a huge fan of the six-pack. Yeah. Are we still calling it the six-pack? I, I, well, you're the boss. You tell me. I, you know what? We got we to gotta put uh, go back to the lab with a pen and a pad we, we here because we got to figure this out. If, if Maybe this we'll isn't... bring the we'll Matt's brain in on this because I – Well, I that's think... not going to say much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the person who's not here gets chirped the hardest. Oh, that's the best. I know. But, uh, Other thing, I walk in today. Yeah. Right? Like, like I'm gone for maybe a couple days, just bad timing. I'm away uh, for, for quotation work. Yeah. Yeah. I come back today. I walk into the studio. We've got this. I, 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 would, I would call it a table, but our listeners wouldn't understand. We have a boardroom table. Yeah. The, solid the podcast room is changing dramatically. It's beautiful. If I go away again, this thing's going to be fully decorated in here. You're not, not going like to need we're me. Like, yeah, we, we're, we're changing. This is the thing. We've got artwork on the way. We had a, obviously, a, a great studio in Mount Pleasant yeah. that was tr- a terrific place. We had you there many a yeah. times back in the day. And when COVID hit, everything kind of shut down. Yeah. We couldn't use the studio anymore. So this is was a temp studio that we had built in yeah. our in our office space. Yeah. And now it's becoming our permanent space. So finally, almost two years later, 
we're starting to actually turn it into a podcast. Well, I'll be honest with you. When I walked in, I thought you guys were like guests on like Love It or Listed or something like that. I didn't recognize the place. Yeah. And also, yeah, our our hairlines, Todd Talbot. We're we're really- uh, I thought Todd came by. Yeah, well, Todd's been in this studio. Well, we just we just had the temporary furniture. That like was this, the problem. This thing doesn't even look the same. Yeah, no, I know. It's it's incredible. Big changes here at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And last but not least, Corey, I just I got to say, what a great idea naming your boat business, so you could always say that you're going away on business. And I and I appreciate that you've been in Kelowna on business, but it sounds like you're still going to be back for the podcast in the coming weeks. Well, I. You told me you weren't going to tell anyone about that. Yeah. <laughs> My wife doesn't even know we even have a boat. Don't worry. We, we, uh, yeah, yeah. News to, thank God she doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> so how can people find out more about what, what you're up to at William Wright Commercial Real Estate? They can reach us at williamwright.ca anytime on the website. They can welcome to sign up there for newsletters and all the great new stuff we have coming out. They can call our Vancouver office at 604-428-5255, or they can send me an email anytime at Corey at williamwright.ca. And regardless to whatever their commercial needs are, we'll put you in touch with the best broker we got for your asset class and where you're looking to go. And we'll put you in touch with anyone throughout the province. Perfect. Awesome. Well, I guess uh, next week we're back with uh, who's on next week? Uh, next week, I believe we have Byron Chard. Oh. Good, good friend of the show. Yeah. Good friend of the show. Byron. Huge fan of so Byron Chard. I talked about guys that I owe a lot of money to that could bury me under the buildings. Yeah. Byron is one of those guys. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, so I figure keep my you know friends close, my enemies closer. So that's yeah. why I invited him on. <laughs> so that way he thinks twice when he's asking me for my shoe size when I can't pay him in three months. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, well, assuming you're still here, we'll see you next week. Yeah, great. Thanks for listening, guys. Subscribe today.